Yeah, give them a hand, would you? They're, I'm sure they're watching online. Or they're chasing Finnegan through the house. I mean, you know, Don and I have said several times uh, since March, and as we've watched school go online and then back in person, then online, and back in person, then online, and I think they're back in person, they went online again. Families who are dealing with this, no matter really what age your kids are, are, are doing the heavy lifting through this pandemic. And teachers, uh, Kelsey is a teacher, and um, it's, really, it's really incredible. And we're praying often for you uh, with empathy because when we raised our boys, we didn't go through anything like the last eight, nine months. And we cannot imagine what that is like. And so we, we pray with heavy hearts and lots of uh, compassion for all of you. And we're grateful for the Fletchers that they could do that for us. Um, so a couple things that I want to update with you, uh, update you about regarding church stuff and uh, things happening this Christmas. We have uh, some teams of folks that are spreading out all over the Castle Rock and beyond area, delivering some bags. Some folks will get them. Some folks have gotten them. The, those deliveries will go on through this week. And, uh, and so we just wanted to bless you as a church, and we hope that you enjoy some of the goodies you receive. If you get to the end of the week or even the next week and, and haven't gotten a bag, that means we either didn't have your info or don't have your address or something like that. Um, and so you could send us your info, and we'll uh, get stuff to you or give you a chance to come by and pick it up. But give us this week, and we'll see, we'll see where we're at. One of the things that's in these bags that we have delivered to some families already are candles for our Christmas Eve service. Uh, normally, we would gather in this room and, and fill it a few times uh, with our Christmas Eve services. We, we think it's... Uh, a difficult thing to imagine how to e even light our candles together during this time. And so, um, in fact, the way you're seeing this room now, you, you know, you could light your family's candle, but poor Paul would be left alone all by himself without his candle lit. So, um, and he's had a rough morning already. It takes a professional musician to play along with a band without his in-ear in, in. And so, Paul, great job. So, so good to have you here. So, uh, anyway, all that to say, we will be online for our Christmas Eve services. And so that gives you the opportunity to be at home and just stay safe and, and be there with your, uh, with your family or whoever you might be spending Christmas Eve with. So in the bags, we included candles, the normal candles that we would use during our Christmas Eve service and little, uh, little circles to kind of put around the candle to keep the wax off your furniture. So the good part about Christmas Eve this year is you get to clean the wax off of your furniture. <laughs> Uh, normally, we clean it off of our furniture, but this week, that's, this year, that's all on you. And so uh, we would love for you to participate. We're going to have the service at three different times. We're going to start at 3 o'clock uh, and do it again at 4.30 and then again following at 6. And so uh, you can j join any of those times online. We'll have the chat room going and all of that. So uh, we hope that you can participate and jump in with that. So I think that's all that's happening. One other update I'll mention real quick. Yesterday we did the food bank with our local nonprofit that we're working with, Crops, Scott Stevens Group. Um, and we also did the, the Christmas giveaway stuff, their, their Christmas delivery of the gifts that all of you brought. They, you guys were so generous, they actually couldn't give away all of the gifts that you guys brought. All of you online, a lot of you brought stuff to the church. They I, you know, the, the best news about that, of course, is that they didn't run out. Is that right, Scott? Didn't run out. So Scott's here. He's over in the, uh, the lobby there having a seat. So 
several, many, many families were helped, um, and this, this area in our lobby was filled. It looked like a store, and so folks came in and shopped and got stuff for their families. The food bank did their thing, and they're continuing. They're seeing record numbers come in and get food. You can imagine uh, what a difficult, difficult time it is for many folks. And so we're really glad uh, for uh, that organization and our partnership with them. We're really thankful for your generosity, and uh, we hope that giving has helped you kind of refocus your heart a bit in Christmas times, especially during this difficult time. So we're in this series. It's called Unexpected Hope. And we're digging into the Christmas story and talking about the things that I think are most important after eight months of turmoil and difficulty and uncertainty. And now as we face what we think are some glimmers of hope, either uh, unrest becoming more restful or a vaccine becoming effective, maybe normal life or things moving back to normal. We have lots of questions about all of those things and we can see our hope moving from maybe the most important things to very temporary things. And the danger with that, of course, is that our hope always has a tendency to migrate from what is really most overarching and most important to that which can make us feel better now. That's what we want is to be better now. And when our hope moves to those places, we get to put our weight down on maybe a certain hope and then find ourselves frustrated again. And so we've laid the foundation for what we need to get done in this series. We, we defined hope. We laid a foundation for it. We said that, that hope is anticipating and working toward better days ahead. Okay, that, that definition is really important. You could say that a thousand different ways. We just picked those words. But the elements of what we believe hope is comprised of, those are important things. I anticipate it. I see it. And I'm also engaged in. I'm working toward. And then, of course, we all want better days ahead. Very, very important. And then we laid a very key piece down last week. We talked about surrender being the most important thing. You can't begin to experience hope if you don't surrender first, and Zechariah showed us that, Mary showed us that. Well, their stories continue to intersect, and when they do, they teach us some other things about hope. And it's as if God has laid out this Christmas story in such a way through the gospel writer Luke so that we would find our roots in hope again. So here's what I want you to know today. It's important. I'm just going to lay it out so that you don't miss it, or it's not uh, subtle or assumed or presumed, and it's this. Hope requires relentless, gritty, and intentional work. You could be mistaken and think that hope is a wish and it's a feeling and it's a, an emotion or a, something that is maybe a little softer, or a little less tangible, and you would be completely mistaken. If you are going to live a hopeful life, if you're going to apply what we've talked about, how important hope is, that it's more important than skill, it's more important than IQ, it's more important than pedigree, it's more important than education, it's more important than being optimistic. Hope is the single largest definer of what it means to move forward in life with an understanding that God is with you and that you can actually do another day or another week or another school year. If you want hope to be front and center, then you have to know that it's not a soft idea, that it's not a wispy subject. It requires relentless and gritty and intentional work. And it requires large doses of selflessness 
a large amount of humility without hope, without this understanding of hope, you won't put into it what is required to make hope real to you. And you'll find yourself wandering and bumping up against the difficult realities that are bound to be a part of this life. Nobody gets out unhurt, unscathed. Nobody, nobody lives their life without experiencing the kind of disappointment that I thought and I wondered and I expected and I hoped and now I find myself empty and without any understanding of what might come next. And so this is key. Now, one of the stories that's my favorite that tells the story of hope. In fact, it's, it's, it's the theme of the entire story. It's, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's the Shawshank Redemption. Maybe you've seen the Shawshank Redemption. It, it stems from a, a novella that Stephen King wrote, and uh, it was translated into uh, a screenplay. And, and, but when it came out in the theaters, it was a flop. I don't know if you know this or not. It was a complete flop. Nobody, you know, it got good critical acclaim, but it didn't have much financial success at all. It was only after Turner Broadcasting bought it, bought the company that released it and began playing it on cable and it created this following because people were transformed by the hope of the message. There had been books written about the hope and even the Christian mysticism that is represented in the story. Now, here's my broad disclaimer I want everybody to hear, okay? Shawshank Redemption is not a family movie. It's not, unless it's on cable and it's been completely cleaned up. Um, But the themes are important for everyone, so I'm going to show you a couple clips today of Shawshank. And, and the reason why is because the, the essence of this gritty, relentless, intentional work is what is displayed so powerfully and profoundly in the context of the story. The first clip I'm going to show you, two main characters, Andy Dufresne, who's imprisoned wrongly for a crime he didn't commit. Of course, it's joked about early in the movie that, yeah, everyone here is innocent, Andy. And, but Andy, in fact, is innocent. He has a good friend, his name is Red. This is Timothy Robbins and Morgan Freeman. And they make their way through their incarceration together and help each other through it. But in the allegory, the parable of Shawshank, Andy plays this very important role of a man that holds hope front and center. So in one scene in the movie, he is Alone in the warden's office, he discovers some old records and a record player, and so he locks himself in the warden's office, and he finds an operatic piece on a, on a uh, uh, piece of vinyl. He puts on the turntable. It's actually the marriage of Figaro, and he begins to play it, and then he puts the PA system, Mike, up next to the speaker of this record player and broadcasts the entire piece to the entire prison. It's a beautiful moment when these men in the prison yard find themselves stopping whatever they're doing and looking up at the speakers as if something deep and important is calling to them. Of course, eventually the warden and his cronies bust into the warden's office and Andy has to do some hard time in the hole as a result. Now the scene you're gonna see, Andy comes out of the hole after his several days of solitary, isolated confinement and he joins his friends for a moment uh, during a meal. (laughs) 
So they let you tote that record player down there, huh? He's in here. In here. That's the beauty of music. They can't get that from you. Haven't you ever felt that way about music? Well, I played a mean harmonica as a younger man. Lost interest in it, though. Didn't make much sense in here. Here's where it makes the most sense. You need it so you don't forget. Forget? Forget that there are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's a, there's something inside that they can't get to, that they can't touch. It's yours. What are you talking about? Let me tell you something, my friend. Hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can drive a man insane. It's got no use on the inside. You better get used to that idea. It's one of the best scenes of the movie, this moment where they both make their statements about life. They're good friends, and they kind of use each other to, to help each other navigate their path while they're on the inside. But... but Andy's right, hope it makes the most sense in a place or a season or a time when things seem hopeless. That's when hope matters. Red is also right. Hope can drive a man insane. This is why the writer of Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. He counters, of course, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred. I wish and I hope and I place my hope on something. And it could be anything, right? I hope the weather is great for our vacation. I hope that our friends can come over today for lunch. I hope that what's underneath that wrapping paper when I was a little boy, I hope it is the thing I asked for that I put on the list. I hope mom and dad took care of business. I hope, I hope, I hope. And all of this hope, of course, can pin our happiness or our contentment, our expectation on things that are not designed to hold the weight of our hope. And so if we could, it, we would sit down and have a chat about this and, and I would ask this or even just use this statement. Tell me about your hope. Tell me about it. Why? Well, because hope, having hope, having a focus of hope, developing hope, holding on to hope, building a foundation of hope that will last, it is gritty important, purposeful, intentional work. You don't just have hope. You don't wake up and think, well, today I'm hopeful. Something has preceded that sense that you have hope that will push you through. Why do you need hope? Oh my goodness, have you tried to do anything that's worth doing? It's always difficult, always uphill. It feels like you're fighting against some element that is opposed to you. But hope pushes you through. So if I asked you, and, and we knew each other well enough to talk about deep things that matter, tell me about your hope. 
what would you tell me? What do you hope for? What is your hope built on? What do you anticipate? What are you working hard toward? Where do you believe the world is headed? What do you think is going to happen next? What is your hope built on? And how does it help you put one foot in front of another? What about your hope? Have you talked about that with anybody lately? What you really hope for? What you anticipate in days to come? Is the looming paleness or bleakness of next week or the week after, is it so overshadowing the way you think that it prevents you from seeing beyond? What do you hope for? Before we get to the famous words of of Luke chapter 2, you know, those famous words that in those days, Caesar Augustus and so on, that's next week. We'll finish chapter 1, and in chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, there are two songs that are present. One is a song that that Mary puts puts out. I don't know if she did it with with notes and, and, and a melody, but it's a song, Luke calls it. And then another song from Zechariah, it's when their lives intersect and they teach us about the hard work of hope because it requires gritty, intentional, thoughtful, humility, self-intentional, self-awareness. All of this work has to be put in to hope. And so last week, if you might remember, Mary got a visit from Gabriel, found out she's having a baby. It's kind of a big deal. What we don't know are so many things about Mary's life. We don't know much about her parents. We don't know much about her family or how she told them. We know a little bit about some other family members like Elizabeth and and Zechariah. They were related somehow, cousins in a maybe loose sense, first or second cousins probably, maybe an aunt. We don't really know the exact nature of their familial relationship. So Mary runs off to see Elizabeth not long after Gabriel gave her the words. Here's what Luke says. At that time, this is picking up right where we left off last week, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and and she greeted Elizabeth. Now, you might remember Elizabeth was a little further along than Mary, probably about six months or so. John, the Baptist, he's not named yet, but we know he's going to be John. He's in utero. He's in Elizabeth's womb, and Mary walks in and greets her. And at that moment, you read the story for yourself, it's beautiful. At that moment, John leaps. He leaps, the scripture says, inside of Elizabeth. Now, you know, when Donna was pregnant with the boys, you know, she would say, oh, every now and then, you know, uh, he's moving. And I would look and see, it looked like alien, you know, an elbow coming across her belly or something like that, you know, very interesting. But occasionally, Donna would almost double over, you know, because something had happened inside that wasn't a normal, you know, just turn or shift or, or you know, something. And of course, this was a little later in pregnancy. I, I don't know what it was like for Elizabeth when, when the young one, the promised baby that Gabriel had come to tell Zechariah about, when he leaped. But at that moment, 
Elizabeth said some very powerful words. You ought to read them. She says, who am I that the Lord would bless me with your presence, Mary? That the mother of our Lord would be here. Elizabeth already knows. She's already aware that something unique in history is already happening. And they have a moment. They spend some time together. This is really the first time that we know that, that Mary, outside of her little moment with Gabriel, goes into a relationship and has this confirmed that this is actually not something she just dreamed or imagined. This is real, and, and Elizabeth already knows what's going on. I don't know if she knew before or if it was revealed to her in this moment when John kicked her a good one. It's beautiful, and Mary is reduced to worship. You ever been that way? Reduced to worship? Where your only response is to just throw your hands up from your knees and declare God's goodness? In fact, this is what Mary says. She says, Mary said, this is the very first words, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The Magnificat, her, her, her poem, her song is often called Mary rushed to her family to share this news, and now the glory of what Gabriel had promised is coming to fruition, and she hears about it. And we don't know. We don't know when Mary conceived through the Holy Spirit, whether it happened on her way or it happened in this moment or sometime before or after either of those. But she declares God's goodness in this moment. And she says... My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's an important word, Savior. It literally means the one who redeems, the one who saves, the one who brings about where salvation comes from. And Mary doesn't know the whole story right now. She only knows a part of it. But she knows enough to say it is my Savior. Well, the only people that need to know that they need a Savior are the people that need saving. And when you read the rest of Mary's song, it's pretty clear that she understands her humble state. It's one of the key pieces about hope. Hope requires a high dose of humility. Without humility, you'll believe you can do it on your own. And if you believe you can do it on your own, then hope is guaranteed to be front and center and be fake. Because the truth is, you can't do it on your own. So Mary says things like, you have, you have honored the humble state of your servant. And you read her whole, her whole song is about humility and how God takes a king and kicks him off the throne and puts a humble man in his place. How God gives to those who do not have. It's a beautiful song. You ought to read it. But one of the things that you'll see when you read Mary's song that will teach you about hope is this. Over and over, Mary declares what God has done time and time again. And Mary said, he has. He has. In fact, she repeats this phrase in every one of these verses of her song several times. He has done what? Well, he has performed mighty deeds. He has brought down rulers and he has lifted up the humble. What else has he done? Well, he has, he has filled the hungry with the good things and he has sent the rich away unfulfilled and empty. 
he has. And Mary says it time and time and time again. If you were a Jewish man or a Jewish woman, if you were a part of a Jewish family and you heard Mary say this over and over again, and Mary said, he has, he has, he has, you would hear her recounting history over and over and over again. And what would come to mind is, oh, I don't know, David being made king of Israel, or God taking a man like Moses and giving him leadership. In fact, every Jewish family would be thinking of story after story after story of God coming through for his people over and over and over again. Look, the the, the gritty, intentional work of hope, this is so important. The roots of hope grow from the seeds of what? What's the word? Remembering. And this is counterintuitive. This is not what you expect. Why? Well, hope is about what is to come. Hope is about the future. I mean, shouldn't you just know God's promises? Absolutely. That's hard work of hope. But if you start there, you have missed the foundational beginnings of hope. The roots of hope grow from the seeds of remembering. That's where hope begins. This is why Mary says over and over, he has. Look back, look back. He has, he has. What does that mean? When you tell the stories of what has happened, when you remember the role that God played at every moment of your life, then the seeds of hope are planted in good, rich soil. And only from there can they grow. Look, when you tell the story of your life, which you do all the time, right, don't you? You tell the stories of this vacation, that vacation. Over the next few weeks, you're going to tell stories of Christmas's past, aren't you? You're going to say, do you remember when? Do you remember when? And we did this and we did that. You remember that one Christmas we got snowed in and we didn't have? And, and then you remember that Christmas we were down in that warm place? It didn't feel like Christmas at all, but it, you know, I dig some of that right now. You, all of these things, you're going to tell stories of the past. When you tell the story, here's the question I want you to wrestle with. What role does God play in that story? Does he play a role at all? Do you know that he was central, that he was with you? This is his promise, I'll always be with you. That he has met your needs along the way. Do you acknowledge his presence and his provision? Do you say it out loud? Look, the roots of hope grow from the seeds of remembering. And unless you do that, hope is based on promises that you don't even understand the the gravity of because you're not sure God was present back then. How do you tell his story? This is what we know is true. God's the same yesterday, today, and what? And forever. You know that to be true. What happens when you leave God out of the story of yesterday? Well, you're not sure he's going to be present in the future. You're certainly not aware of his presence today. What is it like when you remember? How do you tell the story? How do you tell the story? For he has. He has. This is why last week we said that surrender was so important. So many of us, we tell the story of our past and what comes out is our hurt or our bitterness or our pain or our blaming or our judgment of others, confessing other people's sins. 
Look, if you do that, hope will never grow. I'm not suggesting you whitewash the past. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants you to pretend like it wasn't hard or it wasn't painful or it wasn't um, difficult or that you barely made it through a very, very hard time. Nobody wants to pretend. Nobody likes a revisionist history where the pain is completely cast aside. But what I am saying is tell the whole story, awareness, full understanding that God was present. You're going to tell the story of this year sometime. Some of you are already telling it, aren't you? Story of March or April or May. I am. When we tell the story, do we see God as central and as part of what's really going on? Don't ignore the pain or the struggle. But God's provision is so important. So what I want you to do Here's what I want you to do. Tell the stories of God's faithfulness. Tell them. Tell them around the dinner table. Tell them. I mean, you don't have to make it family devotions. Nobody wants to come to that anyway, right? You need to just tell the story. Tell the story of the normal time, the normal time. Tell about last year. Tell about when you weren't sure you could pay your bills. Tell about when you were unsure of God's healing power and God came through for you in a way. Are you here? Are you present? Are you listening? Is your pantry full? Do you have what you need? Has God taken care of you? Then say it. Just say it. And when you tell that story, the seeds of hope begin to grow. I can't cross paths with Steve Johnson without thinking of God's healing and his ability to surprise us. And so we tell the story, right? Do you remember you remember when Steve was, was jaundiced and skinny? When he couldn't even sit up here long enough to play bass? Do you remember that? You remember when he came back? You remember when God provided through Michaela, who's here today too? You can't begin to allow hope to grow unless you tell the story. Look, do you remember um, the Old Testament? when the nation of Israel crossed over the Jordan. Do you remember that? Going into the promised land. What was the first thing that they did after they crossed through the waters and walked into the promised land? Do you remember what they did? Each tribe, they went and got a stone and they brought it over to the bank and they placed the stone. They made a pile of rocks is what they did. Just a pile of rocks. They didn't hire an architect. They didn't commission a plan. They didn't get a city approval. They just made a pile of rocks. Why did they make a pile of rocks? So that when their children walked by that pile of rocks, they would say, what's this pile of rocks for? And they would say, you're not gonna believe this. We were on the other side of this river and God brought us through. He did what? Oh, tell the story. Tell the story. How did you get here? What role did God play? You don't have to be a Bible scholar, good communicator, smart about anything. You were there. You know how it went down. Tell the story. Include all the struggle, all the pain, all the doubt, all the fear, 
all the anger, all the anxiety. Include every bit of it. But don't forget to include the fact that God was with you even though you weren't sure of that. When I watch us adults who have lived through a few decades of a variety of different experiences live through this year, and I think about what it's like for our kids to watch us wringing our hands and worried and anxious and fearful. You know what I felt like when I was a young boy and I saw mom and dad anxious and fearful? I thought something really bad is happening. I mean, they're usually so calm and usually so careful and usually so thoughtful and so confident. I guess what I want to say to you adults is, calm down, you're scaring the kids. <laughs> you know God is here. You know he's present. He's gotten you through worse. Oh, I know, all of it's unprecedented. I get that. But you know history enough to be able to tell the stories of God's faithfulness. And the counterintuitive piece is when you plant these seeds of hope in this soil of the past, they begin to grow. And when they grow, so many good things happen. It's where hope comes from. It starts with the past. God is good to you. He loves you so much. He knows your name. He hasn't forgotten you. This is the story of Christmas. And it will give hope a chance to really begin to be changing your perspective about what could happen next. It's Mary's song. So the story continues. When it's time for Elizabeth to have her baby, this is the very next piece in Luke chapter 1, she gave birth to a son. We knew that, right? We knew that was coming. I mean, they didn't have ultrasounds then, right? They hadn't already painted his room blue. They didn't have a gender reveal party for John the Baptist. They had to wait till he came out. And he, ah, it's a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And so everybody around, it's so strange when you read this, you get something about patriarchal culture. You also learn something about family Jewish culture. When, when the baby came out, everyone decided, well, we're gonna, obviously going to have a part in naming this. This didn't happen in my family. Donna and I made the decision about how to name our children. Let's be honest, mostly Donna did. I mean, I had a few ideas that got vetoed early on, and we agreed on her names. And so, you know, cultures have changed, right? Cultures have changed, absolutely. But in this unique time, the family says, well, obviously we're going to name this young man Zechariah after his dad. That's the name he deserves. Zechariah needs this name. He needs his son to be named this. And Elizabeth spoke up and said, no, that's not the name. We're going to name him John. And they're like, nobody in your family's named John. That's just weird. We don't trust you. Let's ask the man. Now, what happens next is pretty interesting. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. It's hard for me to understand why Zechariah hadn't been discredited enough after nine months of being unable to speak. I can't believe they asked him anyway. It's also important to remember that when they name the child in Jewish culture, it happens at his circumcision. So it's been eight days since John was born. It's not like he's laying, you know, on the bed all messy from the birth and they're trying to figure out what to name him. This is eight days later. Eight days later, they're going to name this baby and Zechariah still can't talk. Why not? Well, what's about to happen is going to indicate 
whether Zechariah believes what Gabriel said or not. In other words, has he learned his lesson? He's still in time out right now. Nine months. Here's a little freebie for you. I don't know what you want to do with this, but this is what I think. They made signs to his father. This is the family. These are the friends. Now, what you know about Zechariah is he couldn't talk. But Gabriel also said that you will spend this time in silence. I think Zechariah couldn't hear either. Why else would they be gesturing to him? I know we gesture to people that we don't understand their disability or we talk louder to people who don't know our language or something like that as if it will help. But these are family members. These are people that know what's up. And they made signs to him. It could mean a variety of things. Some people, some theologians don't agree with that, but some do. I'm on the side. I think, I think, I think his time out meant he couldn't talk and he couldn't hear. And I think that meant that he spent time in silence, utter and complete silence. Which for some of us, even though we've been in lockdown or maybe a little segregated from other people, is a place that God speaks to us. And so... They made signs. What would you like to name the child? Of course, Zechariah wants them to know he has learned his lesson. After nine months in time out, he asked for a writing tablet, and everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is what? John. That's right. And then his voice is restored. And immediately, he begins his song. And his song is very different than Mary's, but it teaches us another key lesson it's mostly for next week. But I don't want you to miss it today. Immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was set free and he began to speak, praising God. And he says this, praise be to the God of Israel because he has come to his people and what? Redeem them. Purchase them back. He has bought them back. It means they did not belong and now they do belong. It means they were ransomed and he's paid the ransom. He has done what was needed to restore relationship. In other words, we have not been forgotten. We have not been forgotten. But you need to read all of Zechariah's song, the whole thing. I'll pull out a couple uh, phrases that will help you understand the theme of it. This is what he says, that this hand of redemption the way that we have been redeemed, this God who has redeemed us, he has come to rescue us from the hand of our, what? Enemies, and to enable us to serve him without, what? Without fear. And if you read Zechariah's song, you'll see this theme is repeated over and over and over again. It's a very patriarchal theme in Scripture. It's a very male-oriented, militaristic kind of view of who God is and what he's up to in the world. And Zechariah has it. In fact, there are 12 disciples that will have it too. And Jesus will fight against this mentality his entire ministry. I don't know if you remember what happened to John the Baptist, his son. So he went off and he lived in the wilderness and he came and he began his ministry. And when he began his ministry, he began to preach about repentance and when he preached about repentance, he began calling out specific sins. And then when he called out some other specific sins, in fact, namely the sins of those that were in political leadership, it really ticked them off so much so that they put John in prison. And eventually, 
because of his boldness and his truth-telling as a prophet, this political leader had him, what? Beheaded. As a part of a, a pagan celebration, they brought in his head on a platter. If you're a parent, I can't imagine a deeper fear that you would have than the well-being and the safety and security of your kids. John is just born eight days, just been circumcised, been given the name John. And part of Zechariah's song is this. God will rescue us from the hand of our enemies. Did that happen with John? Ah, wrestle with it. it. Enable us to serve him without fear. I, I don't know if John was afraid before he was in prison, but it's pretty clear that once he was in the prison cell that he had some doubts about even who Jesus was. Listen close. The work of hope is gritty and intentional. It takes hard work to decide where you're going to place your hope. What truths are sturdy enough for you to put your hope on? We don't know when Zechariah and Elizabeth passed, but I wonder if Zechariah was living long enough to watch his son suffer and if he wondered about the song that he sang. Is this ultimately true? Of course it's ultimately true. Is it ultimately true that you'll be taken care of? Yes, it is. Is it ultimately true that God will never leave, never leave you? Of course it is. But are you gonna find yourself at times in your life wondering why God seems so far away or why things aren't working out or why are we dealing with such disappointment and difficulty and pain? This is the hard work of deciding what deserves your hope. The promise is true. Lay the foundation of the past. In other words, for next week, disappointment that you have now, maybe even later, is a symptom of misplaced hope, always. I mean, it could be it rained on your golf game. It could be that you heard about your son's execution. Likely it's somewhere in between. But disappointment is a symptom of us learning that maybe our hope isn't in the right place. You can replace disappointment with any number of words. Your frustration, your anxiety, your anger, your fear. It's a symptom of misplaced hope. If we learn anything from Zechariah's song, it's this. Our hope is always being refined. It's always being changed. We're always doing the hard work of telling the story of hope fulfilled, but also deciding where is a sturdy place for our hope and where can I place it? This is why it's gritty, intentional, purposeful, selfless work. And it's one that if you don't engage in, you won't have the hope that you need to get through. So through their whole time in prison, Andy and Red, they have a great friendship. And uh, those who write about the Christian mysticism that's, that's present in uh, the whole story of the Shawshank Redemption, they point to the last scene as being the evidence of that. And it represents this heavenly hope that we have 
that is to come. Some of the truth about hope you'll see in Andy's words and in Red's words. Here's how the movie ends. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the name of the town, don't you? Say what to nail. I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and the chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you, and finds you well. Your friend, Andy. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams.